Part 3. Determination. We live restored by practicing restoration. Nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small, we haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. Georgia O'Keeffe Chapter 8. What to do on a do-nothing day. Be good. Keep your feet dry, your eyes open, your heart at peace, and your soul in the joy of Christ. Thomas Merton How to do rest right. Despite the recent busyness battles I've fought of late, people who know me well know I've been on a rest kick lately, mostly for the purposes of writing this book. Staff meetings and lunchtime conversations and hallway chats all seem to chase back to this topic of rest, and before I know it, I've climbed back up onto my soapbox for the umpteenth time, ranting good-naturedly about the dangers of adrenal failure and what we can learn from Sabbath-happy Jews, and why whoever said there is no rest for the weary actually had it all wrong. In response come the questions, all centered on one primary theme. People want to know what a day of rest is supposed to include, what it shouldn't include, and whether it has to be a full day, as in 24 consecutive hours. They want to know if it's legal to take their kids to soccer practice or run by the grocery store or go to the movies on a day supposedly set aside to think about God. Regarding making a commitment to a regular bedhead day, or even a bedhead hour for that matter, it seems the concern is not so much, how do I do it, but rather, how do I do it right? Dan Allender, as always, hits home. The mandate to rest from our work during the Sabbath is so slight and innocuous that it is boggling to the mind to consider how quickly questions come about how to do it right. Should the Sabbath begin on Friday at dusk? Saturday, or Sunday at sunrise? Does it need to be 24 hours, or could it be morning and a part of an afternoon? Can one drive a car, get gasoline, stop for takeout food, deliver food to a sick friend, shop online if no one is working, answer a phone? The war against delight rages the moment one puts the boundary between the Sabbath and all other time. The war involves guilt and shame-based demands that we do it right, so no one can accuse our motives or deeds, including God. To Allender's point, I've noticed that even the most free-spirited among us tend to want to know the score. We want to be assured that if we do X and add Y, then we'll get Z every time. We want to be guaranteed a predictable landing before we agree to take the plunge. A couple from church comes to mind. The mom and dad have four kids, all of whom are young adults. Along the way, the parents put the kids through the same strict paces. The kids were homeschooled and allowed only limited involvement in outside activities, such as playing on sports teams or babysitting or hanging out with friends. When the kids reached teenage years, they were allowed only to court instead of date, which to the parents meant being very selective about who their kids were spending time with, how much time they were spending together, and what they were doing during that together time. The parents had been taught a purity formula somewhere along the way and decided that as long as they followed it to the letter, their kids would all turn out great. They'd whittled down parenting to a science, and they intended for each of their four experiments to prove their hypothesis right. Good training 
plus good boundaries equals good kid who finds good spouse and has good marriage each and every time. The first conversation I ever had with this couple occurred in my office after they'd requested a meeting about what to do with the disillusionment they were feeling toward God. Their eldest, a son, had been a perfect child, according to them, and had submitted joyfully to the rules and restrictions set for him throughout his life. Thankfully, they said, he courted a lovely young woman who also appreciated what they referred to as our way of life. The son wound up marrying the lovely young woman, which pleased this couple to no end. Their formula had worked. Good training plus good boundaries equals good kid who finds good spouse and has good marriage. How we love it when everything adds up. But everything didn't add up. Six months into the marriage, the good spouse had an affair, a bad thing by anyone's standards, and left the good son for good. The parents of the good son now sat across from me, tears pooling in both sets of eyes. This has been the most disappointing season of our lives, the mother began. I mean, we followed all the principles. A colleague of mine was in the meeting with me, and as soon as he and I heard those words, we shared a knowing glance. This couple had done what we all tend to do. We reduced the human experience down to formulas, forgetting that life won't be contained in simple math. What this man and his wife were saying was, God owes us better than this result. X plus Y is supposed to equal Z. We want freedom, we think. As it relates to the idea of living rhythmically, too many people inside the church link arms with the formula-happy crowd. Once they're convinced a bit of rest might do them some good, they rush headlong into the undeniably non-restful practice of crafting and then enforcing a daunting list of thou shalt nots and thou shalts. They determine that rest should mean this and only this and not that, especially not that. It's a tightrope walk God never intended us to walk. In fact, it's legalism at its worst. Legalism is believing God is demanding something impossible of us, something we'll never in a million years achieve. It is the bar set too high, the speed set too fast, the expectation set too lofty, the boundaries set too tight. It is spiritual suffocation. It is darkness when we're desperate for light. I mow my lawn on many a day of rest and think nothing of the act. Come to think of it, some of my most sacred moments with God have occurred while perched on that fat riding mower seat. But I know people who get jittery when I reveal this dark secret of mine. Internally, I have always the same reaction. Seriously? You're up in arms over this? Yes, in fact they are. Not only are they convinced a divine demerit is headed my way, but they're also convinced I deserve it. They're legalists, through and through, whether they choose to admit it or not. My advice to us all, the legalists as well as those like me who shake our heads in astonishment at the restrictions legalists choose to rig up, is simply to live free. Be free. Focus on enjoying your rest. Carrie Wyatt Kent wrote, Here's what Jesus seemed to be saying with his actions. You've heard it said to keep the Sabbath holy, which you've done by avoiding certain tasks. But I say to you, Keep the Sabbath by engaging in relationship, by restoring people to community, to wholeness, by setting people free. And I'd add, we might try starting with ourselves. 
This is why people were outraged with Christ while he was here on the planet Earth, because he compromised rules to champion relationship. He healed on the Sabbath, remember? He also fed people on the Sabbath, trumpeted the coming kingdom on the Sabbath, and did all sorts of things on the Sabbath that the rule-keeping Pharisees said he shouldn't do. He was the perfect embodiment of being free, living free, and focusing on enjoying his rest. We try to follow suit and all too quickly realize this Jesus pace is harder than we think. We don't really know what to do with freedom. Can we trust ourselves? What if we fail? Like a toddler who has just learned to toddle, we think, the only way I'll know I'm out of bounds here is when somebody big yells no. This may be one of the reasons we are so averse to play and prefer the tedium of work, wrote Allender. Freedom scares us. We demand freedom, yet we fear the risk required to recreate in a manner that has such openness, vulnerability, and potential for failure. We want freedom, yes, but will we know what to do with it once it's ours? Thankfully, Jesus knows how to steward freedom well, and in typical fashion, he didn't hoard the information, keeping the secrets to life to himself. Instead, he put on flesh, came to planet Earth, and asked us to taste head-to-toe liberation for ourselves. Upon close examination, I find that all of Jesus' commands were actually invitations in disguise. Granted, they are framed in a commanding voice. Repent, follow me, let your light shine, honor God's law, keep your word, go the second mile, love your enemies, seek God's kingdom, do not judge, take my yoke, honor your parents, deny yourself, forgive offenders, be a servant, be born again, feed my sheep, make disciples. The list goes on, but based on John 14 verse 15, these commands are actually based in love. If you love me, the verse says, show it by doing what I've told you. We follow Jesus' injunctions because Jesus is the one we love. But like so many other plainly true things, we don't believe this truth is true. We get to the thing about coming to Him when we are weary so that He can give us rest, Matthew 11, verse 28, and we think, command, I don't like commands, quit telling me what to do, when in fact we should be thinking, invitation, this is an invitation, more specifically, this is a God-given gift. Receiving Rest as a Gift from God Whenever I catch a whiff of Sabbath-keeping legalism in someone I'm talking to, I encourage him or her with this very advice, to start treating rest not as a command but as a gift. This ought to be task number one on your restfulness to-do list, I tell the person. I mean, if you're going to have a list, then this should be at the top. A gift is something everybody likes. Who can refuse a gift? When someone offers to buy me a nice meal, for instance, or I've been invited to use a friend's beach home, or I get an unexpected treat in the mail, these things don't exactly add stress to my life. They make me exhale, they make my shoulders fall, and they make me smile. The effect is the very opposite of stress, which is the point exactly. This is how it goes with a gift, and how it ought to go with rest. A recent Saturday, when Pam and our kids were in Louisiana visiting family, was this type of gift for me. 
I had helped lead a youth conference at our church all weekend that culminated with a wonderfully inspiring worship service Friday night. The experience was fantastic, but by Saturday morning I was toast. I woke later than usual, 7.30 I think it was, and as my eyes blinked open and my mind came to, I thought, this day of rest, this is a gift. I thanked my father aloud, God thank you for this gift. I missed my family, but I received the time as a gift. A gift is something to be opened and savored. A gift is something to enjoy. I drank coffee and read and prayed and read some more. I leaned in as God revealed some areas of my heart that needed work, and I thanked Him for showing me two specific ways I could be a better dad to my two amazing kids. I took a hike, literally, and continued to talk with God. Then, after showering and dressing, I drove down to Whole Foods to shop for something to eat. The guy manning the seafood counter said they just that afternoon received some shrimp, fresh from the Gulf. It's pretty rare we get these, he said. Done. Dinner was decided there on the spot. The cooking process was slow but effective, and a few hours later I set before myself a plate of home-cooked Cajun shrimp, at which point I thanked God profusely for edible ocean life. It had actually been my intention to go slow, to clean and devein and saute and prepare. I'd wanted this to be an event, not a task. And it was. And my heart was full because of it. Fourteen solid hours of wake time, and not a single minute was rushed. What's more, nothing of measurable value was accomplished. No task list was completed. No ambition was promoted. No production whatsoever to report. It was sweet time with God, no agenda, no real outcome, nothing except fellowship with Him. Progress, to be sure. The following day was intense due to the departure of a beloved member of our staff team who took a role in another church, and then I had scheduled a rigorous day of writing that Monday. I remember driving home Monday evening thinking, even after the last two days, I still have something left in the tank. I had filled up so much on Saturday, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically, that I was sort of skipping through my week. Well, not skipping. I wouldn't picture a field of daisies exactly, but I certainly felt less burdened. I wasn't weighed down as I sometimes am. Rest had yielded good returns. For so long I refused to buy into that idea, but it was proving to be the truth. Receiving rest as a gift is not unlike conducting a spiritual Where's Waldo search. You know those red and white stripes are somewhere, you just have to seek them out. I was getting ready for bed last night and heard the soft whap, whap, whap of rain falling on the roof. I'm a sucker for a good rainstorm, and so I beelined it for the back deck, settled into a comfortable chair there under the eaves, and watched the drama unfold. Vibrant lightning, a cool wind, thunder rumbling off in the distance. I grinned as I imagined God with a conductor's wand in hand, orchestrating the entire show. The performance was gone as quickly as it had started, but I was there to see it. What's more, I saw it not merely as condensation falling to earth, but I saw it as a gift. I feel the same way each spring when I catch sight of the season's first robin redbreast or when I detect those tiny buds finally bursting through the beds of mulch. Gift. Each one a bona fide gift. When I was with Eugene and Jan Peterson at their Montana home, Eugene took me on a walk along the perimeter of his property. 
A mutual friend once told me that Eugene could name and give the origin of every single plant on his grounds, and what I was seeing were a lot of plants. Who is that tuned in to his surroundings? Of course, it is someone who lives life at rest. And so I pay attention as I rest. Or I try to pay attention anyway. I try to slow down, to look around, to take in with grateful eyes the immediate world in which I live. On this topic of paying attention, of silencing all distractions in favor of tuning into God and His handiwork, author Rachel Held Evans once wrote, My inner voice can be a royal pain in the rear. An obstreperous child, impatient with questions and eager for attention, my inner voice likes to focus on the future, not the present, and already she had some rather strong opinions about lunch. Quiet, 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 I kept telling myself. Embrace the silence, focus on God. But nothing seemed to work. My mind kept drifting from one thing to another, and before I knew it, I was outlining an article in my head. Finally, I remembered something my agent told me before I left for this retreat. When you're on the spiritual retreat, she said, don't try too hard to make something mystical happen. Just go and be. If you enter with too many expectations, you'll be disappointed. Reflecting on that time away, she later said, So what did God say to me in the silence that morning? I'm not sure, but I think it was something like, Don't try so hard, little child, and, Hey, check out this cool turtle I made. You receive the gift when you listen to yourself breathe. It happens when you put down the phone, or close the laptop, or cease tweeting for even ten seconds and open your ears to a neighbor needing to talk. It can happen when you watch your teenage son shuffle toward the refrigerator, grab the O.J. from the shelf, take a swig right from the carton, and then sheepishly smile as he turns and sees that he's been caught. You half-heartedly shake your head in response and grin, thinking not thoughts of indictment, of frustration, but of grateful disbelief that he's gotten so big. It happens when you take time to appreciate a splendid and too short rainstorm. It happens when you hold your spouse close and whisper, I love you, into a ready ear. It happens when you live out a passage of scripture you've read with mild indifference a dozen times. And yes, it happens when you notice the turtle paddling along, there in the gurgling creek. When you're looking, you will find them, these outstanding gifts from God. And when you open up a hand to receive them, that's when you get rest right. Thanking God for the Gift of Rest After a wildfire in our neighboring community of Black Forest, more than 500 homes were deemed total losses, 25 of them owned by families who are part of our church. One couple in their 60s lost everything except the clothes on their backs. They were relieved to have escaped alive, but as you'd expect, they felt naked without any of their things. No toothbrushes, no underwear, no spare pairs of shoes— None of their computers, none of their photo albums, none of their socks or towels or books. Sure, these things could all be replaced, but for the three-week period following their evacuation, life for them felt empty and barren and sad. All their systems had been disrupted. Everything familiar to them was now gone. The couple fled to the home of good friends, close friends, friends who take you in when everything has been lost who lived several miles south of the burn area. This is what the church does during crisis. 
we rally to meet the needs we find. So this pair appeared on the doorstep, separately, because the wife had been at the gym working out, and the husband had been at work before making a mad dash to their home, grabbing their cat and two dogs, and then racing back up his street. And they said, We have no way of knowing if our house will make it, but we've been evacuated for the foreseeable future, until fire safety personnel can get in there, do an assessment, and let us know what's next. Before they could make their actual request, can we stay in your guest room for a while, their friends hugged them and ushered them inside and said, What's ours is yours. Stay as long as you like. They then pointed the jittery couple toward the spare bedroom, invited them to use the fresh towels in the bathroom cabinet if they wanted to clean up, and said that dinner was already underway and that there was plenty to go around. As I mentioned, it was a full three weeks before the couple was able to find a house to rent, somewhere to call home, because theirs had, in fact, burned to the ground. And during that twenty-one-day period, sorrow would wash over them like the never-ending waves of the sea. One moment they'd be mourning the decades-old family portraits they'd never be able to replace, and the next they'd find themselves laughing over the general amusements of daily life. They'd feel buoyed by the momentary uplift, the smiles, only to be knocked down by the next wave of grief. It was exhausting, the wife later admitted, but still they found a way to cope. Each evening after dinner, but before everyone was weary and ready for bed, the four adults would gather on the back deck, and there beside the flickering flame of a candle they'd recount God's faithfulness from the day. At first it was slim pickings. Well, we had to go meet with our insurance agent, the husband might say. And while there is a ton of red tape involved in a situation like this, our agent said, probably in passing, I'm sorry for your loss. It was a trivial thing, I guess but today it felt like a gift from God. They'd go on this way for fifteen or twenty minutes, no more than that most nights, speaking aloud the gifts they believed were from the hand of God, a good night's sleep the previous night, an extension on a work deadline, news that another neighbor was safe and sound, the generosity of loving friends. And then they would blow out the candle and get ready for bed, and gear up to tackle the trying tasks the next day surely would bring. It takes a special sort of strength to thank God for the gift of rest, especially when rest doesn't feel like a gift. For this couple, life had tossed a set of circumstances their way they absolutely did not want, and yet even there, in the ambiguity and frustration and pain, they viewed the three-week period of rest as a gift, and they thanked God for that gift. Thankfulness works magic on a harried heart. When we insist on being grateful, on seeking out places to point our praise, our rhythms can't help but write themselves. Our heart rates can't help but come down. I got my professional start in journalism and remain an admirer of stars in the field, one of the brightest of whom is Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Catherine Ellison. According to her official bio, in addition to authoring four books and serving both as a foreign correspondent and later as a writing consultant, Ellison has traveled underground with Eritrean guerrillas fighting the Ethiopian government, reported from the front lines of U.S.-backed wars in Central America, hunted for Nazis in Paraguay and Argentina, and spent a week traveling with a band of Huichol Indians during their annual ceremonial peyote hunt in central Mexico. She has been taken hostage by Mexican peasants, 
arrested by Cuban police, tear-gassed in Panama, chased by killer bees, and required to watch more World Cup events than she cares to remember. The woman has been busy. And yet you get the feeling from reading one of her latest books, Buzz, A Year of Paying Attention, that more chaotic than all these episodes put together has been the chaos of raising a clinically distracted son. Ellison's son, whom she and her husband nicknamed Buzz for his always frenetic energy, was diagnosed with ADHD as a child, plunging the couple into a difficult and demoralizing world. Across his adolescent years, Buzz was often angry, sometimes violent, and always misunderstood. He chased off all his childhood friends and most of his younger brother's friends. Finally reaching a breaking point, Ellison considered boarding school or some other sort of long-term option that would get Buzz out of the house. She even revealed the plan to her son on the heels of one especially frustrating afternoon, explaining with tight lips in a serious tone, you will not destroy this family. What Ellison didn't realize early on was that her own clinical distraction, she too had been diagnosed with an attention deficit disorder along the way, was feeding the beast of her son's disobedience. She wrote, An innately challenging child can easily wear down the average parent, and in particular the scatterbrained parent. The child's extraordinary resistance leads that parent either to back off or resort to harsh punishment, making the child even more angry and aggressive, and so on and so on until everything falls apart. Armed with this new insight and still desperate for relational relief, the Ellison seized every opportunity for healing they could find, including everything from medication to meditation, cognitive therapy to powdered soy shakes, neurofeedback, hair analysis, genetic testing, special diets, and summer camps dedicated to organizational skills. They also tried custom exercise routines, tinted contact lenses, horseback therapy, and swimming with dolphins. She jokes that with a little more time and an ounce more exasperation, exorcism would have been next on their list. Still at the end of it all, Buzz was still Buzz, complete with his anger, his cynicism, and his grief and the fractured family was still writhing in pain. Clearly, something drastic needed to be done. The question she and her husband feared wasn't if something tragic would become of the Ellisons as a result of Buzz's issues, but when. It's widely known in ADHD circles that kids who suffer from the disorder face some pretty sobering statistics. They have, for example, four times as many car accidents as those who aren't affected. They have five times the rate of suicide attempts and ten times as many teen pregnancies. They're also more than twice as likely to be arrested and up to three times as likely to abuse alcohol and drugs. What's more, the disorder in children has been linked to significantly higher rates of divorce by their parents and to a greater chance that the children will be physically abused. It may be invisible from the outside, but the suffering it causes is all too obvious. Ellison had a solution in mind. Rather than pay for additional medical and psychiatric interventions, she would simply pay attention to her son. She would apply her investigative journalist's eye to the struggling young man living under her own roof and see what she could learn. She would slow down, step back, let go of her expectations, and take in life through a totally different lens. She did this not for a day or a week, but for a full year. 
her observations forming the spine of her book. Once she had hindsight on her side, she would say, If I've learned anything by now, it's that kids like Buzz do best with parents who aren't having tantrums right back at them, or even frantically checking email every five minutes. Parents able to listen closely and explain things patiently and repeatedly. Yet this sort of self-control so easily eludes me when I'm in my default mode of scrambling around in frustration over projects left up in the air. And so she would practice, practice listening closely and explaining things patiently and generally avoiding the chain reaction that tumbles forth when a parent responds angrily, judgmentally to a child. I've come to believe that the only way to break this chain, she said, is to keep in mind William James' idea that what you pay attention to becomes your reality, and, when possible, to keep my focus fixed on the best parts of people's natures. Ellison's newfound focus paid off. Things didn't go perfectly, but while the relationship is still admittedly a work in progress, she describes it as restored. She explains, I know I've already seen glimpses of the gifts Buzz may one day unwrap. Somewhere inside my son, I am learning to trust there's a good man just trying to get out. And she chooses to pay attention to that goodness, to the host of things she is learning that she might not have learned had she parented an easier kid. As strange as this may sound, I bring this up not as a parenting example, but as a paying attention example for both you and me. The truth is, I read Ellison's story and found myself relating a little too well. I may never have been diagnosed with clinical distraction, but I've been plagued with distraction of the spiritual sort for years, and I believe it is no less severe. Sure, maybe I can mask my dysfunction better, presenting a more socially acceptable front, but still it lurks under the surface, causing me to embrace chaos as readily as buzz. I look back on old patterns with disgust, the overworking that almost cost me my marriage, the blatant disregard for the feelings of close friends, the mental hopscotch that has sabotaged so many times of study and prayer, and I consider how weary I became in doing good. The Bible says not to do that, and now, all these years later, I think I know why. Margin author Richard Swenson says that whenever he confronts Christians about their out-of-control pace of life, he braces for the response he most often gets, which is some iteration of Philippians 4, verse 13. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Richard wants to ask, can you? Can you fly? Can you go six months without eating? Neither can you live a healthy life chronically overloaded. I'm not sure I ever really gave Christ such credit for my pressure cooker pace, but I certainly subscribe to the I-can-do-all-things way of life. And did I ever learn the hard way that nobody can do everything, at least not without paying a steep price? At last I recognize my bedhead days for what they are, no less than salvation through and through. Pulling away to enter the rest of God isn't a fun little hobby I can afford to do without, as Ellison discovered, paying attention, keen, heartfelt attention, is the key to living sanely in an insane world. It's the only way the chaos gets calmed. The formula junkies who prod me for day of rest do's and don'ts miss the point entirely. It's not the rules, but the relationship. If you're genuinely, lovingly paying attention to God in your rest, the rest of what you do or don't do doesn't matter at all.
Breaking Busy Challenge number one, thank God. You've had several opportunities to practice healthy, rhythmic living to this point, both for an entire day and also throughout the course of your typical daily life. Hopefully you've seized those opportunities and benefited from them. The challenge this time around is for you to acknowledge the one who provides real rest in the first place, your Heavenly Father. As you experience moments of Shabbat Shalom this week, quiet moments when you can actually breathe, when the frenetic pace of life is divinely kept at bay, thank God for the gift of rest. You might whisper a prayer, jot down a journal entry, or simply look skyward and say thanks. Let Him know you are aware of the gift He's providing and that you're actually receiving it in the spirit with which it came. Challenge number two, find your buzz. Just as Catherine Ellison saw great gains in her relationship with her son when she ceased trying to fix him and instead simply paid attention to the goodness embedded in him, his realities and his needs, you too can realize significant benefits by training your eye, your energy, and your attention on the positive aspects of a part of your life that feels broken or wounded or raw. For this challenge, choose the object of your dissatisfaction, a key relationship, a seemingly immovable obstacle at work, your weight, your bank account, whatever, and note what you observe. What causes you pain there? Why is the situation so tough? Now write down something positive about the circumstance or relationship, some aspect of goodness that still remains. What steps can you take this week and this month to build on that goodness you've declared? Consider asking a friend to hold you accountable to taking those steps sooner rather than later.